Thank you, Bart. Well, this morning we're going to look at this idea of God being a consuming fire. If uh, you like short messages, um, we have one point, but we also have four subpoints. So I'm so sorry. I, I set you up for for uh, for disappointing there, but um, but we will we will get through this together and um, be blessed by the study of God's word. So really, I don't you know have a necessarily a clever introduction or anything like that. I just want to kind of roll into it. So we're going to start with kind of looking at point only point number one. And uh, that is this, and this is kind of the overall heading of, of the morning, and that is this, when God speaks, he is not to be refused. I think that uh, this, is, this is very important because, you know, remember in the context of the book of Hebrews, you have Hebrew believers who were considering going back to uh, basically seeking to be justified with God by their works. Uh, rather than by faith in what Christ has done for them. And so they were looking to kind of reject the gospel, to kind of turn away from the gospel as, as, as the gospel's purpose, the purpose of the gospel and what it's supposed to be in, in a person's life. is supposed to save, it's supposed to grant grace, it's supposed to forgive. And they said, essentially, you know, we don't want that approach to what it means to be right with God. We want to we wanna go back to the law. We want to jump through the hoops again. We want to go through the traditions. We want to go through the, the ceremonies and other things like that. And so they wanted to kind of, you know, choose a wrong way to be right with God. And what they were doing basically, you know, is illustrated very well for us. You know, Troy did a great job in illustrating that for us in last week's text when these believers, you know, kind of are, are pictured as wanting to kind of return to Mount Sinai. Okay, and so they, uh, they, they wanted to go where the Mosaic law was given. They wanted to go where it all started as far as the Jewish religion was concerned in, in the sense of the law. When in, when in reality, they, they had already come to Mount Zion. That's what he said in that, our previous passage. He said, look, you, you have not come to Mount Sinai where there's thunders and smoke and fire and that sort of thing, but you have come where there's festal gatherings and multiple, you know, angels without number and, and, and where the blood of Christ is, where it speaks of a greater testimony than Abel, and Christ is that mediator of that new covenant. That's, that's where you came from. So Mystery Man, who is, uh, we've been labeling as the writer of Hebrews, is continuing to kind of warn these Hebrew believers, or professing believers at least, that if they return to Sinai, kind of the tradition, works righteousness, those kinds of things, then they would be refusing the gospel message. And so he says in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That word see literally just kind of means look to this or beware of this. You know, it kind of sounds weird, but we as believers, much like these Hebrew believers, are to be actively not doing something. And so he's saying, you know, see to it that you don't do this. Pay attention to this. Beware of this. This is something that ought to be always constantly on your radar screen. But what is the thing that we are to not be doing? Well, it says here, not refuse him who is speaking. And that word ref refuse 
standing alone on my page looks like refuse, but he, ref- the, uh, he uh, re- refuse basically just means to excuse yourself from something. To excuse yourself from something. Now here's a question for our parents. Have you ever received the eye roll from one of your kids? Show of hands. Parents who don't raise their hands don't have kids. Or something like that, or they have very small children who haven't learned that special skill of, of the eye roll that usually hits around five, uh, or something like that. So, so parents have received the, the, the eye roll, you know, or maybe, you know, hopefully not, but you receive something a little more aggressive, like, you know, speak to the hand or something like that. And basically what, what the eye roll is, or a palm to the face, or something like that, is just a physical expression that you are excusing yourself from the conversation. Oh, mom. Oh, dad. You know, you know that, or, or don't want to talk right now, that sort of thing. This is just a, a physical manifestation of what you've already decided in your mind that, that I am not participating in what's about to take place here. You're kind of checking out, and you're choosing to express it not in verbal language, but in body language. Now, just to make the, the kids not the only ones guilty in the room, how many of you have received an eye roll or a hand from your spouse? Husbands look to their wives with great fear and trepidation. We do that. You, oh, <laughs> your wife told you to raise your hand? Okay. Well, folks, we're all guilty of that. You know, we've, we've either mentally done something like this, or we've verbally done something like this. You know, even our newlyweds in the, in the audience, you may have not have done it yet, you're in, the, you're in gleeful honeymoon, post-honeymoon uh, state right now, but it's coming. It's coming. Your wife will say something to you, or your husband will say something to you, and you may do with all of your might, refuse to express that in body language, but you might roll your eyes. You might do the kind of thing or something along those lines. And I'm not condoning it by any means, but, but this is what we do. So according to verse 25, basically, God should never, ever, 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 ever receive from us the eye roll. We should never stick up our hand to God and say, I know what you're saying, but it really doesn't matter to me. I know what you're saying, but this is not what I am to be doing. We are never to refuse Him who is speaking. And so now we're going to kind of roll into our four reasons why. Why, and this passage gives us four really great reasons. Reason number one is this. God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is inescapable. How did the Israelites not escape when they refused to listen to God's voice on Mount Sinai? Now, we understand from the passage that their motivation for refusing to listen to God might, in that particular moment, have been fear. You know, based on all the cataclysmic stuff going on, we know that the people of Israel constantly refused to listen to God for a host of sinful reasons as well. So maybe in that moment, they saw the, the thunder, the lightning, the smoke, the fire. They heard the voice. The voice shook the ground underneath them. I mean, this is pre-CG. There are no giant green screens or digital domes that are setting false images in front of these people. These are actual things that are happening. 
grounds quaking, all this stuff, and, 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 and maybe, possibly, in fact, the, the, the text in Exodus that hints at this says that they were incredibly fearful, rightfully so. So their motivation at that moment might have been fearful, like, we don't want to, this is scaring us, we don't want to listen to this right now. But we know that as you look at the history of the Israelite people throughout the, the desert and everything like that, throughout their travels, that they constantly, on a fairly regular basis, said, God, we don't want to listen to you right now. And that was due to rebellious or sinful reasons. And so their constant rejection ended in that generation being rejected from the promised land and dying in the wilderness. As it says in Numbers 14, verses 27 through 29, God is speaking and He says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward who have grumbled against me." Can you imagine? Think about this. Can you imagine the thousands? I mean, give or take, they probably had about two to three million people there at that time in the desert, give or take, you know. Numbers I've heard up to four and a half, that sort of thing. But can you imagine the thousands upon thousands of funerals that happen in the next 40 years? And every funeral basically being a reminder, we refused Him who spoke to us. That was the message. Oh, so-and-so died, and -and so-and-so died, and -and so-and-so died, and as they're burying these people, the message is always, we refused Yahweh when He spoke to us. And yet verse 25 says, for if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. And so there's this greater to lesser argument that if they didn't escape, and they didn't, they died under God's judgment. How much more should, will we escape? And the idea is, you know, that, that, you know, in this small kind of thing, which we don't see necessarily as small, thousands upon thousands of people dying, how much more will we escape who refuse the gospel, who refuse to listen from the voice from heaven? So God's judgment is inescapable. The second reason why we should not refuse Him who speaks is God will always be a consuming fire. God will always be a consuming fire. So in verse 29, it even says, for our God is a consuming fire. How do we know from this passage that God will always be this? Well, letter number A says, God was a consuming fire at, at, excuse me, Mount Sinai. We've already kind of looked at this, but in verse 26 it says, at that time His voice shook the earth. Now this word shook literally means it's, it's the Greek word for wave. So kind of the idea is, you know, if you've ever seen footage of a major earthquake, you know, you have a, a perfectly solid bridge, and then this earthquake happens and all of a sudden that bridge becomes kind of a, 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 an amusement park ride. You know, it's just waving in the air, and you're like, that thing's concrete. That thing's metal. It's not wooden or, you know, or something like that. It's not plastic. It's a, it's a solid bridge, and all of a sudden, it just looks like a roller coaster. Now, how many of you have experienced an earthquake? 
Now, you may think it crazy, but one of my bucket list items is to experience an earthquake. It really is. I, and, and some of the people who raised their hand a second ago just go, you're crazy. Well, you know, uh, Troy likes to row across the Atlantic. I like to be in the middle of cataclysmic events. Uh, I'm from Oklahoma, and uh, tornadoes are, are a joy. In fact, if you know if someone's from Oklahoma, it's when a tornado's nearby, they go out on the front porch and watch it go by. Uh, it's kind of the deal. But, but I do. I have, a, I have a kind of a bucket list. There's just something fascinating to me about tectonic plates kind of rubbing together and just causing perfectly good solid ground to become mush. You know, and, and I know I could die and everything like that. Like I said, it may be a crazy item on the list, but I personally would like to experience an earthquake. But we learned from last week's message and we learned from this message that the, the, the quaking that's going to be happening and what is being addressed here is not something anyone would ever want to be a part of. So in Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 13, just describing this scene, it says, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So here we kind of have this scene where this mountain is burning and it looks like the smoke is going to the stars. That's kind of the idea that it's talking about there. And there's this darkness and, and gloom and Exodus goes on to describe the scene with thunder and, and lightning and loud trumpet blast <coughs> and the whole mountain trembling greatly. And, and like I said, this is pre-green screen or computer generated imaging or anything like that. This was real things that were taking place and this was basically just the, the might and the power of God on display. And Moses in Exodus 20 kind of gives the people of Israel the reason why God is revealing himself with such fury. He says in verse 20, do not fear, <coughs> do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be, more, may, may be before you that you may not sin. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, God was trying to drive them, the people of Israel, uh, He was not trying to drive the people of Israel far away from Him by showing this fire and this lightning and everything like that. He was not saying, you know, get away from me, I'm holy. Although He said, do not touch the mountain and that sort of thing. He was not trying to drive them from Him as much as He was just basically trying to drive them towards the fear of the Lord, to, to drive them away from sin, to motivate them not to serve sin, but to serve me because I am mighty, I am majestic, I am powerful, I'm holy. But what was the people's response to God doing this? Of course, fear, but also rejection. <clears throat> so we see in verse 18 of Exodus 20, it says, the people were afraid and trembled, no doubts. But it also says in verse 19, the people said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So we don't want to hear God. It scares us. But they, they were still rejecting God. We don't want to hear God. Moses, you hear from God and then just tell us what he said. And as we said in the previous point, God's judgment is inescapable. But not only that, but in the second point, or letter number B, is this, God is still a consuming fire at Mount Zion. 
Our passage last Sunday said, for you have not come to what may be a touch, what may be touched, excuse me, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And he goes on, he says, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words may the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. There's that going to Mount Sinai, the place of terror and horror and everything like that. But then it goes on to say, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so a a person reading these passages, the contrast of Sinai with, with Zion, might kind of draw the false conclusion that coming to Zion gives believers a license to be flippant about God. Can't go to Sinai, God is mighty, he's majestic, lightning, fire, that sort of thing. But man, look at Zion, it's a party. (laughs) Festal gatherings, fellowship of those who belong to the city and other things like that. You know, the the blood shed for me. That place is is kind of a, (coughs) excuse me, party. And so, in a lot of ways, we might think, you know, man, I'm under a new covenant, I am under grace, we are free, so let's make our worship services a man-centered dance party which a lot of churches do. You walk in and all of a sudden, you know, they're just kind of cranking some, some secular music. And then, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the dancers show up on the stage, you know, and the, and the lights are going everywhere and, and, and those kinds of things. And it really just becomes kind of a man-centered concert of entertainment. And this is a false conclusion because our text says God is, not was, God is a consuming fire. The God of Zion and the God of Sinai are the same God. And so one day, one day God will prove even more that He is a consuming fire because He will not only shake a mountain, He's going to shake everything. He is going to shake everything. Look at verse 26, it says, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Thank you, brother. Sorry, folks. (coughs) But also in verse 27, he says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And this is kind of just a short description of the time that will come where God will judge everything. (coughs) It is described very well for us in Revelation 20 verse 11 where it says, (coughs) goodness, I have a cough apparently. Um, Verse 11, he says, then I saw a great white throne and him who who was seated on it. And notice this, this is very important. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. That sounds a lot like him shaking the earth, shaking the sky, as he promised in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, from his presence, the earth and sky fled, and this very frightening statement, and no place was found for them. <clears throat> you know, so often we, we think humanity invincible because of earth and because of sky and, and you know, and, and some of these things, and then all of a sudden God shows up to judge the earth and sky, and all of a sudden there's just no place for those things that we find so solid and so trustworthy and so majestic. He is a consuming fire that will one day consume all of creation. 
And then the third reason why God is not to be refused when he speaks is this. Number three, being members of an unshakable kingdom must be met with gratitude. Being members of an unshakable kingdom must be met with gratitude. Someone can lay, you know, kind of later, who's an engineer? We got several engineers in our congregation, okay? Yeah, very good. So someone can later explain the science to me, but I, I know we have, you know, kind of a, a lot of engineers in here that can do this, but, but when it comes to earthquake, the, the, the advice I often hear, you know, is to go into a doorway. You know, as the building's going to fall down on top of you, your safest place is, is the doorway. And that was, was kind of strange to me. I, I, you know, I'm not a physics major, and so, so there's that. But, but, you know, I guess going into the doorway as the building falls down around you is, is, is kind of the safest place to go. And it's kind of the idea, you know, I can kind of almost comically see, you know, this person on the fifth floor of some building, and they can't get out, and so they kind of run into the doorway, and everything falls down around them, and they're just still on the fifth floor, you know, there's just this little narrow piece, and they're standing in the doorway, and everything else is gone. But when it comes to God's future judgment of the world, where He will shake everything to the point that all things that have been made will be no more, which is essentially what it's saying there, believers in Christ have something that is way more reliable than a doorway, don't we? Look at verses 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. And now a person can pause here and kind of say, well, I'm something. I'm someone who has been made. I'm, I'm part of creation. I haven't been around forever. You know, I'm not eternal. I'm, I'm, I'm someone who's been made, and, and that is correct. You can kind of make that conclusion, well, I'm going to die on this thing. But then we read on. It says, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And then the, the kind of the thinking person might be thinking, okay, those are eternal things. You know, that's God. That's Jesus. That's the Spirit. That's, that's heaven. That's angels. And you're right, but then look at verse 28, just to kind of seal the deal for us as believers. Therefore, let us, and man, you ought to circle us, underline it, highlight it or something, but let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When a person places their faith and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, they receive or become members of an unshakable kingdom. As it says in last Sunday's passage, when those Hebrew believers and all believers came to Mount Zion, we came to what is known as the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So God will come and shake all of creation, and we run to the doorway of the gospel, the doorway of Christ's blood, that blood that was shed for our forgiveness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and when it all comes crashing down around our ears, we are left standing, no matter what floor we might be on, we are left standing safe in His unshakable kingdom. You say, what does that have to do with refusing God or or listening to God when He speaks? Well, notice it says that our reaction to this great news of being a member of His unshakable kingdom must be gratitude. Folks, Ingratitude, or no gratitude. Ingratitude is really just a synonym for rejection. 
It really is. It's just a, a synonym for rejection. Here are these Hebrew believers who have heard the gospel, have seemingly received God's free gift of eternal life, and after some time of participating in body life, we're now contemplating handing it back to God and saying, thanks but no thanks, God, I've found a better way. What does that do for the gift giver? What does that do for the person handing this amazing gift of salvation? Well, we understand, uh, hopefully none of us have experienced this, maybe you have, but we understand maybe as earthly gift givers that we might hand a gift to a kid and he's like, And so here are these Hebrew believers that have received this gift of salvation, at least verbally, and they're kind of opening the present, they're going, Gratitude is not only the right response to God's gift of saving grace, it is also the faith-affirming response to that gift as well. Being gracious or thankful for being a member of God's unshakable kingdom is not just a a right response in in a sense of just being pleased with what you have just received, but it's also just a, a, a sign or an affirming thing that Christ has saved you. It proves that you have become the type of person that when God speaks, you do not refuse Him. Point number four. God, as a consuming fire, must be met with proper worship. God, as a consuming fire, must be met with proper worship. Now, remember how in point two, we saw that the reason for God revealing Himself in, uh, in such a fur- furious way was not to drive the people of Israel from Him, but to drive them from sin by motivating them to fear the Lord. Well, the same application goes for us when we, when we read the God, uh, when we read, excuse me, of God being the consuming fire that will one day kind of shake all of creation. then um, we will respond with proper worship. So what exactly is proper worship? Well, verse 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, here it is, with reverence and awe. Now, here's a question for us every Sunday, and that is this. Did I worship God today? Did I worship God today? And you might say, yes, I sang, or yes, I read my Bible, or yes, I prayed, but did you worship God who is a consuming fire? Was your worship marked by reverence and awe? You might ask, what do you mean by that? Because reverence and awe seem so subjective. They seem just kind of, what, 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 what are we talking about when we talk about reverence and awe? Well, first of all, the word reverence really kind of has two different meanings, but I think both of them apply here. The first meaning is it's kind of a grief due to the personal sense of evil. 
I think that applies here. I think that when we see God as a consuming fire, we see him as a holy God, and our first response ought to be, I am a sinner. I love how Peter, you know, where, where he, uh, uh, Jesus says, you know, go out and fish. And he's like, Lord, we've been out all night fishing and we haven't caught anything. And he says, go ahead and go anyway, but for you, Lord, we'll do this. And they go out and they catch this, you know, overload of fish. And Peter's first response isn't like, thank you, Lord. God provides. Woo! You know, lame it, claim it, or something like that. No, his first response is, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And yet this was a glorious gift. You say, well, aren't we supposed to receive the love of God like, you know, with kind of a party attitude and everything like that? Not necessarily. You receive this most undeserving gift of God's glorious grace and wonderful stuff that's happening in your life, and our right response ought to first be, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful person. But then the second definition is also equally applicable, and that is, you know, it's a reverence or respect because you recognize something as truly worthy of good, rather than it just having kind of the, the name good attached. You know, so like Alexander the Great. I'm sure there are a lot of people who were close to Alexander that said, he's not so great. <laughs> he's not. You know, I mean, he could kill me for saying that. And I guess that's what makes him great, but he's a horrible person to to take to your party. So there are people and things that are labeled great, and then there are people and, and things that you look at and you know from personal experience that it's great. And that's what we're talking about here. When, when we have reverence for God, it's not that, you know, oh, yes, I read in the Bible that there's a big fire and makes ground shake and that sort of thing, but I've, I've never really experienced that God, and so I know that I'm supposed to, as a Christian, kind of jump through this hoop that, that God is awesome and mighty, and so I'm to show reverence. That's not, what's being ha- that's not what's happening here. You are a person who has true, deep reverence for God because you know who He is. See, you recognize who you are, and that ought to knock every single one of us down a few zillion notches, but you also recognize him for who he is, and that knocks him up zillions more. But not only is our reverence supposed to be marked by those kinds of things, but our worship is to also be marked by awe. Such a small word for such a great thing. The best way I can kind of explain this to you is kind of briefly describe a situation that happened to me in 1999, give or take. Like I said, I'm from Oklahoma, specifically from Dell City, Oklahoma. If you Air Force people know Tinker. I used to sit in my front yard and, and watch uh, the B-52 do touch and goes. So, uh, you know, we were pretty close to the Tinker Air Force Base and, and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, kind of in that general area. And at the time, around this time, I was in seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, but I had come back because there was a conference being offered at my home church that I wanted to go to. So I came down from Kansas City and stayed with my mom, uh, who, who has lived in Dell City for over 60 years. Um, and, and so uh, kind of staying with mom, and, and that conference basically was scheduled, and it happened approximately two weeks after that big EF5 tornado went through that area. And, and just mowed down, I mean, never bounced anything, just boom, from I think Choctaw, Oklahoma, all the way to kind of northern Oklahoma City, which is fairly unheard of. 
And so it was an EF5, and then when it got into the city, uh, it, it kind of scaled down to an EF4, but still caused great destruction. And, and this tornado, when it was all said and done, just to give you some stats, uh, caused 36 fa- direct fatalities, I think five indirect fatalities with the damage that was caused afterwards, destroyed 1,800 homes, and caused a total estimate damage of $1 billion. So when it came through my area, it was approximately uh, one-third to half a mile wide. And on the first day of the conference, I remember I got in the car, I was kind of looking around a little bit for evidence, because it had been two weeks afterwards, a lot of people have recovered and that sort of thing. And I was driving to my home church, and, and, I, and I remember specifically when I crossed the storm's path. It was at a stoplight, and I just kind of stopped, and I looked to my right, And where used to be a a fairly large neighborhood, it looked like someone took about a half a mile wide lawnmower and just drilled a line through the middle of the neighborhood. There are houses on the left and houses on the right, and there was just this huge gap of nothing but rubbish and piles and other things like that. And as I sat there in the car, I was just, you know, my jaw dropped to the floor, you know. Even if you're from Oklahoma, especially if you're from the city, you don't experience tornadoes as much as people think. But you still, you know, get, a, get an occasional good one and that sort of thing. But you, you know, my jaw just dropped to the floor. And I think even the car behind me had to honk when the light turned green because I was just still in shock. You know, I was awestruck. And this is the kind of awe that we ought to be expressing towards a God who sovereignly in that moment did an itty-bitty thing like sovereignly cause a mile wide at one point to about a half a mile wide tornado to just kind of cause this itty bitty thing in the destruction of 1,800 homes. Yet one day he's going to do a gigantic thing like judge the world. He's going to do a gigantic thing like create a situation where the world and the sky and everything like that has no more place. So the question then becomes, did you have that kind of awe in your worship today? Did you have that kind of reverence for God in your worship today? Or maybe in your mind you were kind of distracted. Maybe as you were singing the words of the song, in your mind you were at the next thing. Or the next thing. So the challenge for us here is to, the a right response to God as the consuming fire is to be met with proper worship, and proper worship is to have right reverence and right awe for who He is. And as we often do on Sundays where we recognize our graduates, we turn to the edge of the message and kind of apply it to our graduates. Okay, so I'm going to ask our graduates who came down the center aisle this morning to stand up. <sighs> Come on, man. Now do some jumping jacks, just kidding. Um, okay, you're standing up. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, so we have eight. I'm going to ask everyone to be seated but Asher Rask and Kessid Turner. Okay? And I'm not playing favorites here, so those of you who sat down don't go, well, he likes Asher more than me, or anything like that. Or Kessid. 
Often when we talk about, I'm gonna let y'all sit down in just a second, don't worry, but this is pretty fun. Um, <laughs> often when we talk about recognizing graduates, we, you know, we throw out this startling statistic that's out there. Okay, we, we say, you know, that, that about uh, high school graduates, you know, once they graduate and they get out of the house and they go off to college, that it's really just one in three, by the age of 20, one in three that are faithfully attending a church. All of them have all bugged out other than that. So the ones who have just sat down, I'm sorry, but you're no longer attending church. Okay, you guys can be seated. That was just a visual maybe that, 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 that would kind of help us out. And rightly so in a lot of ways, since this stat came out, you know, everyone kind of went into a panic and they really started questioning the effectiveness of student ministry and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. A lot of people started really analyzing and saying, well, it's all just fun and games and, and peanut butter and messy stuff and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, we need to teach kids doctrine and that sort of thing. Agree with all of that. Agree that student ministry always needs to self-examine tweak and, and, and change and improvise in order to, you know, as, as, as our motto here at Rocky for the student ministry goes, it's moving, student, moving children or moving students from children's ministry to church membership. That's kind of our motto, and that's where we try to kind of put our efforts towards and that sort of thing, that, that when they leave the student ministry, they need to know what it's all about to be a member of a church, to be part of the body and that sort of thing, that they're not just some sort of, you know, maverick or renegade that's kind of out there and they're on their own now or anything like that. They need to be in church, in the body, those kinds of things. We really strive to do that. Don't always succeed at that, but that's, those are some goals of ours. But I want to say personally to the students, and I, and I really want to say this to every professed believer that is here this morning. We are not probably saying, I want to go back to the Mosaic Law, okay? We're, we're, we're not in the same scenario here with Hebrew uh, believers in the first century and what the book of Hebrews is about, but I want to say to all of us here, and this really applies to all of us and to our students, your God is a consuming fire. Your God is a consuming fire. Don't, for our students, for our adults and everything like that, don't refuse him at any point where he speaks. Don't. Do not refuse him at any point where he speaks. You say, well, you know, I may fall out of the way because youth group was fun and adult group is not so much fun, or, you know, or, or I'm, I'm going to kind of drop out because, you know, I'm, uh, you know, th this or that, or I'm in charge of my own life and I, there are more priorities, you know, whatever the situation is. Yes, you can, I guess, include student ministry as maybe part of the way you're thinking, but if you decide, and, and I'd say this in love because I love you all, but I say this in love, but if you decide to kind of just drop out or fall out or whatever, or tune out, whatever the situation is, if you decide to do that, that's on you. That is on you. You have gotten a wrong view of who your God is. Your God is a consuming fire. Therefore, do not refuse him when he speaks. You say, well, well, I don't know, you, you know, you don't understand, Pastor Bill, how, you know, you don't understand how intelligent this person's arguments are in my philosophy class. You, you don't understand how this group of friends are so much fun and they make me feel so welcome. 
You, you don't understand how hypocritical the so-called Christians at my college really are. You don't understand how beautiful she is or how beautiful he is. I know all these things are pulling me away from my faith, but, but you just don't understand that, that this thing that's, that's dragging me away from Christ is bigger than Christ. And I want you to ask, can so-and-so shake the world? Can so-and-so do this? And just to speak to the adults, you might be saying things like, you don't understand how my husband or my wife treats me. I know what God says about marriage and about home and everything like that. You don't understand how this person treats me. You don't understand how my boss is. You don't understand these things. But I do. And it doesn't matter. You will stay faithful to Christ's body as a member of Christ's body because you understand who Christ is. And you will constantly, maybe not consistently, but in the big picture of things, you will constantly remain faithful to Christ in reverence and awe and gratitude. So I just want to challenge us. Have you refused where God has spoken? Have you said, God, I know what you're saying here? I don't think so. Or have you with gratitude, God, this is hard. God, I don't know what you're asking me to do. God, I know that the demands you're expressing to me right now difficult. They're hard. They're, they're tough. They're asking me to this or that. They're asking me to say no to this, or they're asking me to say yes to this. They're asking me to go to the other side of the world where there's no electricity, no cable television, whatever the situation. Don't refuse him who speaks. We looked at some very good reasons why. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to hear your word, to respond to your word, and I pray that we would respond well this morning. Lord, all of us in this room at some point in our life are guilty of not truly worshiping you. We do get distracted. We do have idols of the heart. We do have things in our life that are constantly seeking to pull us away and to look to you and to treat you like something you are not. I pray, oh God, that you will establish and reestablish in our hearts a right view that you are a consuming fire. We thank you, Lord. For those of us who have placed our trust in you, we thank you that we are members of your kingdom. And that's something as cataclysmic and as unbelievable, we can't even imagine, can't even fathom it, even though we've seen movies and things about the, this stuff. Lord, we can't imagine on a, if, we, if we saw it with our own eyes, you coming in and destroying the world. And yet we will stand because of your great grace. 
We thank you, Father, that that doesn't cause in us a a shrinking away from you. That does not cause in us a a trembling in a sense of, I don't want to have anything to do with that, God. But Lord, it makes us love you all the more. It It makes us devoted to who you are. It makes us excited and shaken at the same time about your power and your glory and your strength and your might. And I pray, oh God, that that would be the attitude and condition of our hearts right now. Lord, I pray if there is someone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you will do what only you can do, and that is to raise the dead. Lord, they they see this God that's a consuming fire that will one day judge the earth, and their conclusion is man-centered. They say, how can a God be so horrible as to do that to his children? And I pray, O God, that they would think rightly. And understand that in in your holiness, Lord, in your righteousness, you are very much justified to kill us all. And yet you show great mercy in saving us. And so I pray that your salvation would not only be true for those of us who, who cling to it in reverence and awe and gratitude, but it will be true of those people who don't know you right now. Father, I pray that you will be again with these graduates, Lord. May they continue to do above and beyond all that they could ever ask and think as a result of your power working in and through them, Lord. But I pray for those moments, Lord, that will happen often, those moments where they're, they're in a dorm room or they're hanging out with a group of people and there is just a, a great temptation to kind of glom on to somebody, to, to kind of connect with a group of people, or to, to even do something on their very own that will not be pleasing to you. I pray, O oh God, that you will help them, Father, to rejoice in being absolutely lonely. I pray that you'll help them to rejoice in being absolutely alone Though it seems the world is against them, I pray that they will be against the world. But also, Lord, we pray for your great provision of godly friends and godly, good, clean fun. And we pray and ask that you will grant that to them as well. That they will not just be someone who is constantly struggling and being beaten down every day like like Lot in Sodom but I pray that they will have a solid group of believing friends, discipling each other, enjoying each other's company as they are in Christ, and having good, clean, fun that will not harm their conscience. Pray that you'll help us as a church to always remember them in our prayers. And I pray that we will all be members of the body of Christ for one another and for your glory. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.